Well, I guess it's time for the young people to go over their homework. And I gave you all a little proverb last night. And so who wants to say it? Very good. Let's all say it together. There is no honorable way to do a dishonorable thing. All right, for tomorrow night. Now this is a little longer, but it's not difficult. We are never more spiritual than we are scriptural. We are never more spiritual than we are scriptural. You believe that, Franklin? I do, and I'm getting to be an old guy. Okay. People are going to throw all kinds of far-out ideas at you, and it's some new revelation and new wine. There is no new wine. It's, it's all right here. If it's not scriptural, it's not spiritual. Okay. What I have to share with you this evening, I wrote quite a few years ago after being inspired and convicted by reading a book written by Howard Hendricks. And so I often, when I go away for a week of meetings, I carry this along. And this is for the hometown crowd, uh, pretty much. And so I'm going to share it with you. Am I reading and living by the book? And I want to start out with the first, second verse of Psalm chapter 1. But his delight or desire is in the law of the Lord, and on his laws does he meditate day and night. And I gave my life to the Lord when I was 13 or 14, and that was well over 50 years ago. And while there's been times in my Christian walk where God didn't seem very close to me, perhaps it was because I had failed in my commitment in God. It was never because he had failed me. And the biggest struggle of my Christian life all down through the years has never been, uh, and more specifically as a young Christian, has never been this thing of lying or, or cheating or stealing or dishonesty, swearing, or any number of sins known to man, my struggle has been, more specifically as a young Christian, the discipline of reading and studying, enjoying the book, God's written word to us. Perhaps you can identify with me. So I want to take some time this evening to look at some causes and effects of an undisciplined approach to Bible reading, and then we can look at some ways that may help us to be more diligent and disciplined in our reading and living by the book, God's written message to us. And I want to illustrate this evening, and so you may want to know why I've never put my teacup and teapot away. Two reasons. I'm going to use them again. Just you wait. The second thing is I want you to be reminded of what I told you. And so when I go away for meetings, I like to drive my truck to haul my stuff. And sometimes I have to fly, and it's tough to bring my things. And I've flown to Canada and 
Idaho a couple times and other places, and I took butcher knives along on the airplane. That's another story. So this evening I'd like to illustrate with my experience of trying to grow citrus north of central Florida. When I was in the second grade, Dayton Elementary School, my school teacher asked us to bring a seed to class, and I think we were going to plant it in a little cup, and it was supposed to be for Mother's Day, and so probably this was about March or April, and it would be ready to take home by Mother's Day, and my mother gave me a grapefruit seed that morning. We ate grapefruits for breakfast, and I took it to school and planted it, and it grew, and I was hooked. I've been into citrus ever since. And my endeavors have often been huge on effort and small on success. You know, citrus don't like the cold. And I remember setting my little grapefruit tree that I grew for my mom in the bedroom window there at Sam Gehring's upstairs, and it froze inside the house. They didn't know about double panes and all that stuff back then. But I tried over and over again. Most commercial citruses grown south of Ocala, Florida, or in the arid southwestern states. Several years ago, I saw an ad in the South Carolina Market Bulletin about a workshop put on by the Southeastern Citrus Expo that all would-be growers north of the state of Florida should come here and learn how to grow citrus in uh, out of the normal citrus-growing regions. And so I went to my cousin, Michael Strite, and I twisted his arm, and we went. A few months later, I read an article in a magazine about peanut farmers in west, northwestern Florida, in the Bluntstown area, that were planting orange trees in their peanut fields. And I got to thinking, you know, our climate is coastal. It's very much like North Florida. And so I twisted Daryl Brubaker's arm, and we went to see that man, one of the growers there. I wanted to learn, I wanted to know, and there was no one in my local area that could help me. And Clemson University and the University of Georgia don't have citrus programs at their school. They're all about football, and they're not helpful at all. And you see, the University of Florida wouldn't help me because I was out of state. And so I was like the Ethiopian going along in the chariot waiting for Elisha to uh, fill up to come along and help me and teach me. Nobody would. I had to make all the mistakes myself. And there's truth in the proverb, learn from the mistakes of others. You will not live long enough to make them all yourself. So I bought the books. I read the books. Anything I could get my hands on about growing citrus, especially of North Florida. And I bought all these beautiful books, glossy books about growing citrus, and I'd read them in the evening, and I'd put them on my bedstand at night sometimes, you know, maybe I could read a little bit before you fall asleep. I wanted to know about how to grow citrus. North of Florida. It took a special commitment, 
And I wanted to not only know what the book said, I wanted to meet the people that wrote the book. It was so helpful to meet the author of these books, and sometimes I have. It took a dogged persistence, a determination to learn and to know, and it took a very patient wife. And yes, sweet quality citrus is not just from Florida anymore. So, if you want some really good grapefruits, Sister uh, Anna May, you're a senior citizen here. Would you like to have these? Well, you all can have them. Y'all can divide them up or somebody can take them home. But I picked those Monday morning on my way here. Of course. <laughs> Haven't you been paying attention? <laughs> Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein, when? Day and night. Why? That thou mayest observe to be careful to know and to do, to do all that is written according therein. And then in Joshua 1.7, says to turn neither from where, the right or the left, but straight up the middle, that thou mayest prosper wheresoever thou goest, for then thou shalt make thy way prosper, and thou shalt have good success. There is a close association or connection between meditating on God's word and acting on it. It is so important that our minds are saturated in biblical truth. When? Day and night. And so I may ask myself, what portion of the scripture was I thinking about as I started my day? And you know, dairy farmers start their day pretty early. And man, that's pretty early. You don't want to get up earlier yet to think about the Bible, or maybe you should. And what part of the Bible were you thinking about as you went about your work, or as you reflect at the end of your day? Do you and I consciously Reflect on biblical truth and principles. Like it talks about in Psalm chapter 1 that I just read earlier. Again, we have that day and night pattern. It's a mental discipline that you carry throughout your day. A mindset, a lifestyle in which God's word courses through your, or percolates like coffee through your mind. Some time ago I went to a meeting put on or sponsored by a company who manufactures a popular brand of calf milk replacer. And the one who gave the presentation had a mantra, and he looked like Nathan Good from South Boston. I'm sorry, but he, he just looked like he'd be Nathan Good's brother. But he had this theme song that he went over and over again, a little ditty that went like this, we've been doing it wrong for so long that we thought we were right. Well, you know, that's the way a lot of Christian people, a lot of other people attempt to go through their daily Bible reading with God. Each day they're in a rut and there's no joy in their spiritual journey and it can soon deteriorate from there and to where we come to the place where we think that we're living in some kind of spiritual funk is the normal Christian life. 
There's one failure after another in our attempts to live a consistent, victorious Christian life. But could it be that we are not reading and living by the book? My wife Grace used to keep chickens for eggs, and she gave that up. Too busy doing other things, I guess. But one time she had a flock of hens that were ready for retirement or needed to be used to make chicken noodle soup or something. And so I went to see my neighbor, Uncle Woody Kemp, to see if he wanted to add Grace's birds to his collection of yard birds and put off the soup option for them hens for a little more time. And while I was there catching up, one of his nephews was there that we went to school with, and he was a retired naval officer. And so we started to having this discourse, and so, well, what do you do now? Are you retired? And he says, oh, I'm working as a security guard at the local college. And I asked him, well, what all does that in, involve anyway? Well, he says, I set in on the classes, and I make sure the students behave and the teacher is safe, and I walk the halls and help keep order. And I said, boy, that, that sounds like the book of Judges to me. And he says, what's that? I said, do you, do you read your Bible? Well, sure I read the Bible, and I go to church too. I guess I just haven't gotten that far yet, he said. Well, then our milk tester lady asked me one day, and she says, where in the world did you get or come up with the name Gideon? which was the name that we had chosen to give our oldest son. And I replied, do you mean that you've never heard of Gideon and you were raised in the church? Well, she said, I guess I must have missed Sunday school that Sunday. Well, I want to say that if you've been raised anywhere around the scriptures and you've never heard of Gideon, you've missed a lot of Sunday school, not just one Sunday. Are we saturated and grounded in God's word or do you feel, find yourself filling your life and mind with so many other things that it actually seems and feels like you've been doing it wrong for so long that it can feel right? Let me illustrate with orchids. There is somewhere around 25,000 species of orchids. The orchid I have here this evening is a Phalaenopsis orchid that is native to Southeast Asia and the Himalayan mountains. I go to Thailand at, at least every year and sometimes more. And while other people are looking at lions and tigers and all that other souvenirs, I go look at the orchids. Orchids all over in Thailand, beautiful. I find orchids beautiful and fascinating. And if you go to the stores, the grocery stores, the flower shops, the garden centers where they sell orchids, there's usually a little tag on them that says easy to grow. Well, I want to destroy that myth right now. Most of us buy flowers for our wife, and if you don't, you should. But I thought to myself one day, why should I buy cut flowers for Grace when I can get her one of these here orchids, easy to grow orchids, for the same or less money and have beautiful flowers for many weeks. And so I bought her one. You see, I knew a lot about orchids, I thought. 
a hot, warm, humid, tropical environment, shady understory, low light, good loamy soil, and it died. I waited a while and tried another one. And again, relied on all of my preconceived and uninformed knowledge in caring for it, and it died too. I tried multiple times, all destined to failure. I couldn't figure it out. I've met many others who've grown them, and they all say that a Phalaenopsis orchid is fairly easy to grow. And then one day, I found the orchid book, a very big and impressive book with lots of illustrations and beautiful pictures. And, you know, I got to reading this book, and I got up to about the book of Judges, you know, and um, I realized that I'd been doing it wrong. I was sincere, but sincerely wrong. I didn't know anything about orchids. You see, orchids like good light. They live in trees. They're not rooted in the soil. And they like don't like wet feet. They like to be watered every day, sort of, and then they drain out all day, and then at night it rains again. They like good ventilation. You know, I've repented. I read the book. And I'd like to say, my orchids look pretty good now, right? Pretty foxy. I'd like to show them to you. But I want to tell you, you'd better read the book. It's much like wanting to know the master without reading the book. In my early Christian life, I believe that I often read the Bible without, with a, out of guilt. I knew that I should read and pray to feed my spiritual man, but guilt is a very poor motivator, and it is often very toxic to the learning experience. Uh, it can often kill all the joy that should be ours by being engaged as an active reader of God's Word. The late Howard Hendricks said this when he was converted. Someone gave him a Bible, and you know in the fly cover here, you know, it's this empty page. I'd have to ask Mark Eatwell why they're in there for, but anyway, someone had written in his Bible that they gave to him. It said, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. I think that was true then, and I still think it's true today. Either you are in the Word, and the Word is conforming you into the likeness of the image of Christ, or you are in the world, and the world is squeezing you into its mold. Romans 12, 2. You know, I, I don't know where you all go, but down our way, people drive, oh, they'll go up to Hartwell, Georgia. That's three and a half hours to fellowship meetings and special meetings. And, and or they'll drive up to SMBI for the minister study week or family week. Oh, probably really good things. Not a thing wrong with them. Or... They just love to drive a long ways to sit under the teaching of the Word, the teaching of the book, but we find it very difficult to get up across off of the chair and walk across the room and pick up that book and sit down and read it for ourselves. We find the time and the resources to go 
to faraway places to participate in sporting events, tournaments, or we may block out time in our schedules to go to Florida to fundraisers and sales where giving is not done in secret. And again, find it a chore to make the time to be a student of the book ourselves. George R. Brunk I was said of him that he became so engrossed in his Bible study that he was often late doing his chores and getting his farm work done on time. I'm ashamed to tell you, but that's not me. When it's time to be in the field, when it's the 1st of May, I want to plant cotton. Nothing good happens to late cotton. There's a place and a time to plant cotton. But when it becomes the motivator for my life, more than God's word, I should be ashamed. I've had the privilege of visiting with a man some time ago who grew up in uh, the teen churches. A place where personal Bible study is not really encouraged. But in his teen years, he had many questions and became a student of the Word. And he was born again as now pastoring a Mennonite church instead of smoking cigars. So I ask you, why should I study the Bible? The Bible is to study the Bible is essential for our spiritual growth. First Peter two two. As newborn babes desire or long for that sincere milk of the word, that ye may what? Grow thereby. We should long for it. We should crave it. Just like little babies let their mothers know every two or three hours that they need milk. I've got two little baby grandchildren at home, and, you know, they're just fresh, almost steaming warm, you know. Boy, their mama's got bloodshot eyes and black rings. Them babies let them know when they want milk, day and night. And they get results, too. Psalm 19.10 says, The scripture is sweeter than honey. So what is your view of God's word? And how do you compare it with your appetite for your daily food? Someone has said that there are three types of of Bible students. The first one is the medicine type. The word of God is very bitter, but they know that it is good for what ails them. And then we have the shredded wheat kind. Nutritious? Probably. But it's very dry and tastes a lot like hay. And then we have the peaches and ice cream people. They just can't get enough. They've developed a spiritual appetite by feeding on and living the spiritual truth of the book. And so I ask you, which best describes your experience? What appetite do you have? Medicine? Shredded wheat? Or peaches and ice cream? I'm going to tell you, it takes effort. Lots and lots of effort. Bible study is essential for spiritual maturity. And we get that from Hebrews chapter 5, starting with verse 11, and let me read those verses. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. 
And anyone who lives on milk is still an infant and is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. Yeah, he says, you know, by now you all should be, you know, chewing on that ham sandwich and y'all still want a bottle. Y'all should be reading the scriptures yourself, but you want Dick, Jane, and Sally and story time and a nap. It is very important when we look at this concept of time. Time should represent change and growth. And then in verse 14, it says that when we have trained ourselves through the constant use of scripture, we should have learned to distinguish between good and evil. And so I want to suggest this evening, the mark of spiritual maturity is not necessarily how much we understand, but how much we use of what we've learned and know. In the spiritual realm, the opposite of ignorance is not mere knowledge, but loyal obedience. How many of us do what we know I fail. Sometimes I know what the scripture says and I, in my flesh, I fail. But yet we think knowledge is the answer. Well, that's helpful. But the mark of the spiritual man is obedience. Every time. Now, those of you who have children, would you like for your children to recite to you the house rules? Or would you rather they listen and obey? Obedience. Bible reading is good for correction. Reading God's Word opens up the doors to the closets and cupboards, cupboards of our lives. It helps us to see things lurking there in the corner that needs to be cleaned out and straightened up or maybe just gotten rid of. It has a purifying and cleansing effect for cleaning out the trash that can sometimes accumulate in our hearts and it helps us to conform to the image and likeness of Christ. It is profitable for training in righteous living. It gives us guidelines. You know, it's very popular for us to see those people who attempt to do church or live the Christian life and have fallen victim to these no-guidelines mentality. Yet, they love to go to sporting events and are very adamant about guidelines and foul lines and goal lines and boundary lines and, God forbid, rules about the game that are enforced by cold-hearted and ruthless men in striped shirts, waving their arms and blowing shrill whistles. God wrote his message in a book, and he asked us to study it for three good reasons. Number one, it is essential for growth. Number two, it is essential for spiritual maturity. And number three, it is essential for equipping and training us to be an instrument for use of his glory. There is nothing that can take the place of a lifetime and exposure of personal Bible study and scripture reading. It is vital. It's just like breathing is essential for life itself. And without personal Bible study, you will never be directly involved with what God has to say to you. You will always be dependent on the pastor, the Bible school teacher, the radio preacher, or the podcast guy. 
Otherwise, you will always need an intermediary. Intermediary. And so, those of you who have are dating couples or are married, how many of you all really like to go through a third party to communicate with the one you love? And so, um, Angelina, since I know your name, when you wanted to talk to your husband, did you tell your sister to go tell? You have a sister? <laughs> did you tell your mother to go tell him? Why? You wanted to tell him. You know, a romantic relationship would probably be doomed right out of the chute if we depended on third parties for our communication. How many of y'all know the story, remember our Mayflower pilgrim friend, Miles Standish? You know, a couple of you. What happened to Miles Standish? He was lonely. You know, most of the women passed on the ship coming over. I don't know if they didn't get enough lemons or what, but in the first Pilgrim colony, there wasn't a lot of ladies, but there was this one pretty lady named Priscilla Mullins. And Miles Standish, he was the um, head of command there, and so he, he decided that Priscilla would be a nice wife. He made a fatal mistake. A very, well, fatal, it didn't kill him, but uh, yeah, might as well have. He tells his friend, John Alden, to take a letter over to Priscilla. And then I guess he was the mailman. And he was always asking John to take the letters over to Priscilla. And one day there was a wedding in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and Priscilla got married. But who do you think she married? It wasn't Miles Standish, it was the mailman. The same is true with God. There is no substitute for firsthand exposure to God's word and is written in a book. Learn how to get it for yourself. Don't depend on that third party. Grace and I dated for a most part of a year absentee. My job was to live in the bush and be the resident missionary, and she lived 170 air miles away, and she may as well have lived in China. We, we just weren't allowed to see each other. And I had an arrangement with one of the commercial pilots, and it lived in Red Lake, and I would write a letter and that story's coming up. Just hold that one there. Okay, I want to spend the rest of the evening trying to make some practical applications to our daily lives and make this thing personal. To be successful in Bible study, you must learn to read. Good reading habits take personal discipline. Mr. Hendricks says this, there is a direct correlation between your ability to observe Scripture and your ability to read. So anything that you can do to improve your reading skills will be a quantum leap in the direction of improving your observation skills as a student of the Word. We have become a YouTube generation. 
if it isn't a short little video clip, few are willing to take the effort to sit down and dig out the information on their own. And then Mr. Henrich says this about his youngest son. One of my children was halfway through first grade when I realized that they weren't teaching him how to read. So I went to complain to the teacher. Well, you don't understand, Mr. Hendricks, she told me. The important thing is not that your children knows how to read, but that he is happy. And against better knowledge, I decided to let it go for a little while. But at the end of the year, I discovered that my child was disgustingly happy but couldn't read. In fact, I went back to the teacher and said, did it ever occur to you that children might be happier if they knew how to read? And it cost me a month's salary to put my youngster in a remedial reading program. But it was one of the best investments I ever made. Today, he reads faster and better than I can. And so, that is why I believe it is very important that your children See to it that they learn to read. It's very helpful in that learning process. And as you read to your children in your family devotions that we talked about Monday night, it's okay to use a simpler version, whatever. Help them to understand and to be able to grasp. And then as they mature, use more. Um, your King James, or your NIVs, NASBs, or whatever, to match their um, emotional uh, development, mental development. Make Bible reading the center of your family devotions. I read that, I talked about that the other night. And remember this verse, John 4.23 for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is seeking me and you. Be there. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, and I read those the other night, it instructs parents, and especially fathers, to teach the scriptures to their children. It is very difficult for somebody else to teach your children. It is your responsibility, fathers. And one thing I've noticed in these cool minivans is these TV screens on the back. See, you're going up the road, there goes these Mennonite people, and these children are back there watching cucumbers tell them Bible stories. I'm like, seriously? That's Dad's job, not some cartoon. Maybe Mom should drive, and he should turn around and instead of them look at the screen, look at his face, or vice versa. But anyway. Don't let those kind of things teach your children the word. It's mom and dad's responsibility. I'm not saying there's no place for instruction from other media forms. But mom and dad, you can never be replaced. Some of us can't read. Maybe reading is difficult for you. I often drive and Bluetooth my phone to the radio. I don't listen to the radio, but I listen to the Bible being read. There's packets of CDs or digital ways to listen to the Word as you go to work, as you travel. If you find reading difficult, there is no excuse not to immerse yourself in the Word 
in our time. <clears throat> okay. Will you always have a full and complete understanding of what you read? I don't. Uh, I don't read Greek. I don't read Hebrew. But I trust, I feel confident that we have good, reliable translations and that they won't steer you wrong. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Blessed is he who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart what is written, because what? The time is near. And so it is unlikely that you and I will ever have complete and full understanding on this side of heaven. But there is a blessing in reading and in obedience. Remember, it's not the total knowledge, it's in the obedience. Your children will grow up and learn more and more, but we want them to obey now, not when they're 16. Well, would it be helpful if we would read the book as if we read a love letter? Have you ever fallen in love? Mr. John, have you ever fallen in love? I hope you have, and if you haven't, I hope you get the opportunity to. I fell in love with a young lady I met in Northwestern Ontario 45 years ago who later became my wife. For the best part of a year, we communicated by correspondence courtship. And we were separated by many, many miles of Canadian bush and lakes. And there was letters, wonderful letters. It was our lifeline during that time. Each letter that I got from her was invaluable. And when the pilot handed me her mail and he was on his way again, nothing else mattered to me until I had time to give my full attention and my whole being to read the first reading of the manuscript. Food, sleep, company from home, Nothing was really important to me until I completed that reading. And so maybe I went about it like this. So, um, oh, another letter from Grace has arrived. Oh, no. I guess I'd better read it. Did I sit down and read the first paragraph and then say, well, that's enough for today. Glad I can check that off my list. No way. I used to read that letter four or five times, the first setting. And then I'd carry it around in my shirt pocket close to my heart and under my parka for protection. And at night, I'd set it there on my nightstand where I could read it all over again. Why? because I was in love with the young lady who wrote them. And that's the way you need to come to God's word. Read it as though it was his love letter to you. It takes time to read the book and to get to know the one who wrote it. And only you can set your schedule. And you can be sure there will be plenty of things to interrupt it. The telephone, it used to be the newspaper, but now your tablet and your news feed. 
the feed truck, or somebody wants you or needs your attention. And I want to say that people need our attention. Maybe it's your children or the neighbor or something. But it is often things that we allow to clutter our lives and compete for our time in reading the book. Well, what about study helps? Yes, they have their place. But Hendricks says this, you will not seriously be disadvantaged without them. It is important that you know what the book or the Bible says for itself and where it says it. Now some things that sap spiritual vitality and compete for our ability to read and know the book. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. Technology has moved at warp speed in the last 50 years. In my first grade class uh, in Dayton Elementary, I don't know where that's back over here somewhere. It wasn't just the Mennonite and Old Order children who didn't have television. Most homes didn't have it. And it was new, and unless you lived close to the tower and had those rabbit ears just right, the reception was poor and fuzzy at best. You know, technology in itself is not bad. It's, it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. But too often it's used for things that hinder our spiritual growth. Perhaps you've been victorious and have enjoyed years of distraction-free and vibrant Bible reading habits. But there are often those of us who struggle. Only you can put your finger on the things that compete for your time with God. And uh, you know what it is that distracts you. It may be uh, trade magazines or Amish novels or Jeannie Hokey books when love was soft. They may not be wrong in themselves, but please keep them in their place. Recreational reading is fine, but don't let it compete for your heart. The pursuit of business, sporting events, a steady diet of movies, or needing to be entertained, all of these things will compete. Several years ago, there was an article in Sword and Trumpet magazine that was entitled Almost Amish, written by Regina Hess. And she writes a very thoughtful and I think fair assessment of what influence of the media has on the Christian and more specifically those who embrace the Anabaptist faith. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments in every presentation that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We are to be transformed. Our carnal minds are to be renewed and filled with the law of God. We're to meditate on it day and night. You know, I mentioned that we've become a generation of YouTube or very short attention span people. In my Bible school teaching times, I often had books to read. And every year it got harder and harder to get them to read these books. Good books. No, it wasn't a quick read, and it wasn't a Dick Jane Sally book, and it didn't have a lot of pictures in it and funny stories. I had one student come in, and 
I gave her the book, Overcoming Evil God's Way, written by Steve Russell. It, to me, it's the gold standard of books on a position of separation, non-resistance. And that was my required reading for the course. And about two or three days in, she brought it back and says, I'm not going to read the book. And I says, oh, that's strange. I've never had somebody tell me that before. And I said, why? It's boring. Okay. I said, well, it's going to affect your grade. I don't care. And uh, she was actually a pretty nice girl, devout, good home. I don't think she thought I was serious when I told her that it, I don't care how good her grades are on her test. If she don't read the book, it's going to suck her down. I got a phone call months or years later. I didn't even recognize the lady, and she wanted to know if I'd preach her wedding sermon. I was floored and honored at the same time. And then I remembered that book that she wouldn't read. And I had it. And so just before I got to the wedding early and I eased up to the pulpit and stuck that book back here. And, and then I started into her wedding sermon and I, and I told her about all these wonderful things that she would get to experience. But it says, I brought this book for you for when you get bored on your honeymoon. And I handed it to her. After the ceremony was over, she come around and says, I knew I shouldn't trust you. We're friends. My wife and I had to clean the church one time and from our house to the church, it's 18 miles, nothing but cotton, peanut fields and cypress swamps and so on the way home, we thought we deserved it, and we diverged and, and took the other road and went to Pizza Hut for supper. And I watched this couple come in. It was a couple with two teenage children. And as they sat there, all four of them flipped out their smartphones and were engrossed in whoever they were with out there in the world somewhere, and they said not one word to each other. That has become the norm, even in conservative Anabaptist homes. Be careful. We've become addicted to social networks. The need to know, the need to know now, and to be the first to know, and to be the first to send it on to somebody else. You know about all these places, and there's blogs, and blogs, and podcasts, and more blogs. When do we have time to work and read the book? And too many of us has allowed our addiction to computers, and tablets, and phones, to hinder the proper use and development of our minds. Grown me, I travel a lot, not by choice, but because I'm going somewhere. And I, the airport scene, you're familiar with it. All these grown men sitting around on their phones playing Zapazoids, you know. And all the women are over there on social media. That makes for small minds. A fertile, disciplined mind has the capacity to fill volumes. Handel's Messiah was not written by some simpleton chasing dots across his smartphone screen. 
Paul says that godly exercise profiteth little, but computer games profiteth nothing at all. 1 Timothy 4.8. You know I changed it a little bit. Again, quoting Sister Hess. 1 Timothy 5.13 has the sobering comment about women from the first century, how they learned to be idle from going from house to house, and not only idle, but were tattlers and also busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. And in the 21st century, through the wonders of the Internet, we have the unique ability to be able to wander from house to house without ever leaving our home. When I was growing up and living at home, if I woke early in the morning, I would see my dad. This is Sister Hess, not me. I would see my dad sitting in his recliner reading his Bible and having his quiet time with the Lord. My mother, too, was a disciplined person like my dad, faithful as the sun in meeting the day with the Lord every morning. That's one of the pictures of home that my mind goes back to when I remember my childhood. What will my children remember about me? Today we have new tools and new opportunities to show a disciplined life or an undisciplined life. My children, your children are watching me. What example am I living for my children? Do they see an industrious, godly mother or is their mother known for all the time that she wastes on the internet? May God give us strength, the strength we need to be godly women, and I say godly fathers, that he has called us to be in the 21st century. This evening, my heart again has been stirred and convicted as I have shared this with you. And I hope that the Spirit of God has spoke to your heart as well. And I'd like to read the verse in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its laws and decrees in Israel. That is my prayer and goal tonight. That I could be counted among the faithful because I have learned to read and live by the book and share its saving message to others, so help me God.